Welcome back to Fresh Faith. Last week, we interviewed Jack and Jennifer Zebo, and we talked about the turquoise table. So if you need to go back and listen to that episode, I would definitely encourage you to do that because today we're going to be talking to Kristen Schell, the author of the book, The Turquoise Table. Ron and I were really excited to have the opportunity to hear from Kristen and find out where this crazy idea that Jack and Jennifer have incorporated into their lives stemmed from. So here's our interview with Kristen Schell. Kristen, thanks for joining us. As I was reading the book, it seems that Romans 12, 13 really spoke to you. So talk a little bit about how you got started with this idea and how specifically this passage influenced you. Sure. And I had heard the passage before in Romans, and oftentimes in Bible studies or teachings, it's referred to as kind of the hospitality verse, right? And so it was not unfamiliar to me, but you know when... God gives you like a new translation um, or, 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 or a new study, and it just comes alive new. We know His Word is alive and active, and that's what happened to me when I came across um, a translation in the voice. Uh, and, and the voice translation of Romans twelve thirteen says, take every opportunity to open your life and home to others which is a little bit different than the offering hospitality to the saints, which I had heard before. It was take every opportunity to open your life, not just your home, but your life and home to others. And at first it just kind of blew me away. It was overwhelming. I tried to ignore it because I thought that seems <laughs> always like that's, that's God, like really like all this, you know, every opportunity. Um, and then, and I sort of settled my heart and said, well, okay, Lord, why don't you teach me then? Why don't you show me what doing my like? And so that's when I began even deeper dive um, of really that, that verse. And he gave me an illustration of a woman in, um, in Prague. And, and I write about this also in the book. Her name is Ludmila. And she's an 84, or at the time was an 84-year-old widow, recently widowed, and was asking the Lord, what should I do with my life? And he reassured her that you are my ambassador to the kingdom of And I saw this video of her life, and what she did was so simple, but it was such a clear illustration of Romans 12, 13. Ludmila, at 84 years old, would invite people into her home simply for prayer and to be present. And so there was, she wasn't consulting Pinterest. There were no fabulous <laughs> party, you know, things going on. She simply made herself available and through word of mouth or through the Holy Spirit, people would come and just bear their souls. And with open Bible, she listened and she prayed. And I thought, oh my goodness, I had never heard of the ministry of presence. And so that was the first time that I had, you know, become aware of the ministry of presence. And, you know, I think in our day and age, we are, we're so focused on doing, and certainly we have a lot to do. That's not to discount that, but we overlook a lot of times the being. And so I was struck by Ludmila's, the simplicity and just that her presence, that she was just being with these people. And so it, it, that to me sort of you know, framed the clouds a little bit on what Romans 12, 13 could look like, that we could mm -hmm. open our life and home 
it, you know, just by being present, it didn't mean do more. It didn't mean, you know, create more things in our, you know, in our no margin lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It just meant be present to those whom God brings to you um, in, in, in a very simple, open, loving, careful way. That's great, Kristen. I, I love uh, what you say about the ministry of presence. I think um, we just forget sometimes uh, that just being with someone, not having an agenda or anything profound to say, but just being with someone is, is so powerful. Hey, I want to ask you a question here. First of all, uh, I have a little bone to pick with you. You say uh-uh. you bleed burnt orange. Is that true? Uh-huh. And I have a feeling that you might bring up uh, someplace just north of the Red River called Oklahoma. Yes, the Oklahoma Sooners and the Red River River rivalry. How about that? Yeah. Well, so here's the first miracle of the conversation is that we've got a Sooner and a Longhorn having a conversation in the fall. That is a little bit of a a tricky uh, deal to start out with. But uh, what do you think? What do you think this? You got any prediction? Oh, I don't know. Goodness gracious. I mean, here's the thing that we always say at the table. We don't talk politics and we don't talk football. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk religion and we can talk all other lifestyles, anything. But let's just leave, you know, football um, right now off the table. I do. I do agree with one thing that the uh, world peace might be brought about by – bowl of salsa and i like the salty tortilla chips because that that's yes. key that's key not just Isn't tortilla chips but salty yes see that's it so there we agree see this is the thing about being at the table is that you know it only takes a you know a couple of things and then you immediately <laughs> find common ground and so you know we can do that over over maybe football you know but mm-hmm. uh but most likely over you know chips and salsa well we'll talk after october and then i can I can let you know how bad the Sooners beat the Longhorns, and we'll we'll have another conversation. Oh, goodness. Yeah. goodness. Hey, tell me about your four children real quick. So Will is um, a second-generation Longhorn, and he is getting ready to start his sophomore year at the University of Texas. And then we have Anna, um, who is a junior and I mean, sorry, a senior in high school, Ellie's a junior in high school, and then Sarah is in seventh grade. So life right now is um, very full and blessed with all sports and college applications. And uh, Tony and I feel like we're in the season of launching you know, all these kids into the next chapter of their lives. Yeah, that's great. That's great. We're talking to Kristen Shell. She has written Turquoise Table, Finding Community and Connection in your own front yard. And uh, Kristen, just tell us a little bit of the story behind that. I think it, if I uh, remember uh, in the reading, it started in France. Is that right? Um, the turquoise. Well, perhaps. That's where God planted seeds of hospitality. Okay. So long before I knew what Romans 12 was, long before I knew really what hospitality was, um, I flunked French in high school. So that's as glamorous as it gets. <laughs> And so um, my parents didn't really know what to do. Somebody suggested a, you know, summer immersion program. And for, it sounds like a dream now to be sent away to France, but for the child who hated summer camp and never wanted to leave home, it it, it was a daunting um, summer at first. Some of the kids listening to this might flunk French on purpose now that somebody well, can that's, get it. That's, 
Exactly. My children have, tried, you know, they're trying, they're like, mom, now we want France. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, but that summer over there, um, you know, I obviously did not know how to speak the language. But what fascinated me and the thing I took away was the, um, was the, the supper time, the dinner time, two hours gathered around the table, breaking bread and conversations. And, you know, we were busy already in the 80s in Dallas, Texas, and didn't even at Christmas or maybe Easter certainly were, you know, trying to maybe have a two hour dinner, but, but, but not. And so the concept that people would really gather around and, and communicate and, and that's where they would share life unity with one another just stuck with me at the impressionable age of 15. And so that's where sort of my love affair, if you will, with all things French, of course, but, but really this desire to bring people to the table and, and, and use that as a place to do life. That's very, very cool. So um, we have a couple here at our church, read your book. They put a turquoise table in their front yard and uh, we actually have done a podcast with them. It was amazing the the people that, uh, people who came over and started interacting with them. And uh, we now have at one of our campuses a turquoise table as you walk in uh, walk in the door. Some uh, people are going to say, okay, turquoise table in my front yard. Just talk about that. Talk about um, everything from the ambiance as people walk up to, uh, to some of the things that you want to happen around that table. Well, first of all, if people aren't familiar with the concept of the turquoise table and they're thinking, am I hearing this right? Is it a turquoise picnic table in the front yard? Yes, <laughs> that is exactly what it is. Um, and and it is a little different. And it's a little, it, 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 I live in Austin, Texas, and our motto is keep Austin weird. And so <laughs> at the very beginning, sort of decided, well, if this whole turquoise table in the front yard doesn't work out so well, I could just be living up to our city motto. Um, but, but here's the, here's what's not weird about it is that turquoise actually is a color of friendship and it's a bright, cheery color. And so it, it, it welcomes curiosity, first of all. So while the table is just an ordinary picnic table that we've all seen throughout our lives, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times, the turquoise is what invites that curiosity and says, hmm, maybe this is something different. And how we're using these tables is just a very winsome easy place to start conversation and how it happened in my front yard really was a little bit it wasn't planned I didn't just wake up with the idea hey I'm going to put a turquoise picnic table in my front yard and just see what happens um I was hosting a party a backyard barbecue and I needed an extra seating place and so picnic tables are easy you know to to find and they're not terribly expensive and so I, I ordered one for this party. And when it arrived, the delivery men from Lowe's put it in my front yard, almost where it is now. And it's heavy. So they invited me outside to, to, you know, see where they wanted me to, where I wanted the table delivered. And when I went out there, I saw this table, this ordinary pine picnic table sitting right near the edge of our street. And I thought, what if, what if we took our ordinary activities Thursday night pizzas on paper plates, bubble blowing, homework, um, you know, Girl Scout cookie sailing, selling, um, activities that involve glitter, <laughs> you know, that I don't want glitter inside the house. <laughs> what if we were to take activities we were already doing 
And we were to do them in a more visible place, a place that might invite people to slow down and join in if for one minute, if for 20 minutes. So the whole thing started really as a hypothesis. It was a table, which obviously scratched that itch of mine of, of longing to be back at a table, but it was a new table. It was one that didn't require as much planning, as much preparation, as much um, sort of organization and skill, if you will. It was just a, a, a baby step um, t- as an invitation you know, to a table, and that's exactly what happened. Today in um, the cell phone world and all the stuff going on, people are, are so connected uh, but so lonely. Uh, we yeah. hear that from every, uh, from certainly um, uh, Generation Z, but every generation, so connected but so lonely. Um, yeah. Talk about how this idea of having that uh, table, which really kind of harkens back to the day, right, for the front porch where everyone in the evening kind of went outside and interacted with their neighbors. Talk about how you have seen that um, interrupt people's lives to the point where now we can have a real conversation, not just about, you know, not flipping through Facebook and putting a post. Yeah, well, to your point about the front porches, um, we all, you know, had front porches out of necessity. They were actually designed by necessity before the advent of air conditioning. And so then once air conditioning became prevalent, architects and city planners decided, you know, there'd be new kinds of, you know, homes and abodes and and ways of living. And that's not bad. Goodness gracious, sitting in Austin, Texas, I tell you, you know, I don't want to support for air conditioning this this day and age. No one probably ever suspected that that social implication would be taken away from us. And so there's there's many things, um, you know, that, that sort of take away that neighborliness that perhaps um, we, you know, remember nostalgically. And to your point, though, about, about the being connected and lonely, I mean, that is just a, sadly, a hard, cold fact. We live in the digital age, and it is the most connected era in all of history, and statistics are showing that we are increasingly lonelier as a people. Um, the Surgeon General several years ago issued that you know the United States was in a, a loneliness epidemic, and I started. I was at first that word lonely kind of. Uh, I, it didn't resonate with me. I didn't like it. It 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 had a I don't know a negative connotation, right? And so I didn't want to even contemplate the fact that perhaps I myself was lonely. And so I did a little digging and deep you know deep research. Loneliness is actually a lack of meaningful connection. And while we're showing that we are more connected on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and some of these technologies are certainly wonderful. We all have instances of being able to keep in touch with children and grandchildren or grandparents or high school friends. And so that's not what we're talking about. What I, what, what I started noticing in myself was that when I became reliant on those sort of scroll, scroll, you know, friendships versus real eye-to-eye friendships. And and it's just a function of being busy. Um, you know, I realized that a lot of my friends, I was texting in the produce aisle at our grocery store because that was a convenient time to, you know, reply to a, to a, to a text. Um, I'll never forget one of the most um, sort of profound moments. And this is such a simple story, but it speaks volume. My very best friend, Kimberly, 
and I were having a conversation. And it was one that needed to happen over coffee or or face to face. It was a, it was, it wasn't tragic, but it was just a conversation that normally would lend itself to something other than being texting, right? And finally, I texted her and said, gosh, where are you? You know, we need to, you know, we need to talk like face to face. And she, she texted back, I'm in carpool. I said, I'm in carpool too. Turns out she was in the car in front of me. And, you know, it's just those tiny little moments that if my radar hadn't already been up, I would have, I could have glossed over it. But it just signified to me, get out of your car, get off your phone and try to return back to a 15 minute, you know, conversation face to face. But it's hard. It's hard because we're also busy. And so that's where the idea you know, when the table was there, we, we immediately instigated or uh, instituted like a, it, we call it an eye basket for our iPhones. And so everybody unplugs, we take pictures and we do all the fun things that we're going to do anyway. Hmm. But then we, we take our phones and we put them aside because even if the phone face down and it vibrates, it immediately signals. We've all been there. I mean, think about the time when you've been to a restaurant or something and you're having a conversation and it just, it's this unwelcomed guest that just pings hmm. and it's really no longer an emergency. You know, I mean, we raised our children growing up with like the babysitter could call the, the, the restaurant if something was happening. Right. And so I think we've believed this false narrative too, that, Oh, but what if it's an emergency or somebody really needs me, but what about the person right in front of you? Right. Right. Maria, go ahead. Yeah. So Kristen, I have a question. Um, so I, um, I am not, um, the kind of person that is going to, um, uh, I guess, without the Lord's prompting, not going to be really excited about going and inviting strangers um, over to my house. How do you um, talk to the person that um, is, is more of an introvert um, and how that they can participate in um, this idea of um, this uh, relational uh, ministry with their neighbors um, surrounding the turquoise table? Well, first of all, um, and I love, I always get the extrovert, extrovert, you know, question. Right. And so I love to right off the bat. And I'll tell you that I am, a, you know, I'm a, a card-carrying extrovert, so I will never speak for my introverted friends. <laughs> However, they tell me that there's something so wonderful about being outside because it's not that feeling of, you know, being – Going into an event and like, you know, having to negotiate it or, you know, ending up in a, you know, how, where's my exit strategy? And the, the other thing they tell me um, is that, that just the smallness of it. So let's think about it. Picnic tables by design are only meant to hold, hold about four people, comfortably six, eight if you're squish, if you squish, right? I... I think that we have it all wrong. I think you need an extrovert to invite people. But once you're at the table, introverts are the best listeners. And they, I mean, so I think it has to be both and. And so if the hang up is like how you started it with, ooh, inviting strangers. Well, you know, find a friend in the neighborhood. It doesn't, or anywhere. It doesn't even have to be in your neighborhood. Find a friend and just say, will you do this with me? And we're also, if you're talking about your neighbors, you may not know them, but it's also not that far of a stretch. You probably have seen them. You may have something, you have something in common, first of all, a fence or a curb or a street, right. you know, so it's not, um, I, I mean, it can be overwhelming. Don't start at the table. Just 
start, you know, with just this, uh, delivering something or just inviting and doing something where you're not actually, um, you don't have to sit with four people. Most people do like a big coffee or, and when I say big, I'm talking, you know, six to 12 people, right. um, but a coffee or a pizza night or whatever might work in your neighborhood, uh, just to kind of break the ice and then, um, use the table as a place then to actually sit and have longer and more meaningful conversations. So, Kristen, uh, talk a little bit about, I know that uh, at the table you can do homework or you can do a Bible study or uh, you talked about a bubble-blowing contest, I believe. Yeah. Uh, you can do a lot of different things, and and food obviously is one of those. And it's, um, you know, you look at Scripture and the nation of Israel had three mandatory feasts uh, they went yeah. to, uh, so many teachings of, uh, of Christ and miracles uh, center around a meal. Talk about food, and why why is food such a draw or such a levels the playing field or creates such intimacy uh, for for people in general? Just talk about the the concept of food and and fellowship and intimacy. Well, first of all, we all have both good. And, you know, hard memories probably with food and in our relationship with it. You know, something happened maybe at a table or maybe holidays were hard. But by and large, the, the gatherings that, that we are most nostalgic about happen around their event holiday that involves food. So when you think of, you know, the comfort food, and if we were all around and ask, you know, what's our favorite comfort food? Most of it is attached more so to the memory than is actually the food. You know, like, for example, this week I've had a wicked case of bronchitis. And so what was the first thing my mother did when I asked her to bring me something I wasn't feeling well? She brought me matzo ball soup. Um, that, for us, is the ultimate I love you. And she went down to the little Jewish deli in the neighborhood and brought me matzo ball soup. And so for me, when I'm sick, I crave that. We all have a longing or a craving. And, you know, if we think about it, Thanksgiving, what is, what, wouldn't it be Thanksgiving without? What, what, mm -hmm. just, what, what's your must-have, Ron, at Thanksgiving? What's my must-have? Yeah, what's your must-have? Well, it's it's funny. Lori go, Lori takes orders from all the kids, and it's usually the uh -huh. same. But I have to have uh, the strawberry uh, salad, st uh, strawberry Jello salad with that uh, graham crackers on the bottom, oh, with yes. uh, whipped cream in the middle, and uh, mm -hmm. maybe graham crackers or pretzels. Pretzels, pretzels. yeah. It's probably pretzels. Pretzels. Because it's got that salt. Yeah. yeah, 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 salt. Exactly. It has to be pretzels. Uh -huh. So if we don't have that, um, we didn't have Thanksgiving. Right. And so was that your family relationship or was it Lori's? How did that come to be? Or was it just you just, is there a history behind it? That's, uh, yeah. So uh, when we moved to Pittsburgh uh, years ago, someone, we never had it growing up, but someone introduced yeah. that to her. And she fixed it, and all our kids said, this is like part of the meal, but it's really dessert. And so uh, every year we have to have it on the table. And so now, you know, that's we all have those, you know. And, and to me, 
Jesus, you know, he, if you read the gospel of Luke, I mean, he was eating and drinking and walking. I mean, that's, I mean, truly, I mean, think about it, you know, it was like in between the teachings and the, the miracles, it was, it felt like he was always in someone's home, always at a table, you know, always, um, you know, surrounding himself with a meal. And I think it's because it is the most, um, it just, it, it brings us back. Food has a way of uh, being a level playing field. Like you said, it takes away, um, it, it immediately brings us comfort, even if we don't love it. I mean, I remember sitting one time in, in the so- former Soviet Union and eating fish head soup. Now, none of us are going to crave fish head soup, right? Mm. It was literally a head, the big old glassy eyeball looking right at me. But here's what it did. It was homemade. And it was it was a delicacy that I knew represented. You are a guest, and you are an honored guest, and so we're serving you the head of the fish. And like just knowing that, you know, made me sip a little of the broth. I never ate the eyeball, but it did. It gave me, it gave me feel loved and taken care of. And so whether it is the strawberry, you know, Jello salad, or it's matzo ball soup, or it's fish head soup, there is something about offering something at a table that just signifies you are welcome here. Um, and, and, and it just, it sets the tone. And it doesn't mean it has to be elaborate every time. You know, I think even sometimes setting out a little thing of nuts or, you know, just having everybody bring a potluck, it does not have to be entertaining. And I think that um, when we, if we go back to Romans twelve thirteen for a second, you know, I think that one of my stumbling blocks was that I confused entertainment and hospitality for a very long time. And so I think that that's, um, that's something that, that needs to be considered too, when we approach the table. You know, it's interesting, Kristen, we were in um, Maasai Valley, uh, uh, visiting the Maasai tribe in in Rift Valley, right outside of Kenya years ago and a few years ago. And uh, they served um, boiled goat in this big Mm. pot, flies around it and hot Coke. And so they offered it, and we ate the. Some of us uh, ate the yeah. the boiled goat. And years later, I just talked to a, a guy, a, a Kenyan, who was with us uh, in our home uh, this past summer, and he said that tribe still talks about you eating that boiled goat. That meant so right. much to them. Much to them. You know, yeah. uh, it's just it's just uh, uh, food just is so powerful. And again, it's the hospitality of it. It's the work behind it. It's the love behind it. Uh, and uh, and as you say, uh, Jesus was walking and talking and eating, and so much of his teaching uh, took place around food. So talk to the talk to the individual that says, "Man, if I'm if I'm going to have a table in my front yard, I got to have like a five course meal because I got to let all my neighbors know that you know we 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 eat well around our house." And so I really right. have to put on the spread in order to do this. That's one of the things you really try to teach against, right? Well, I guess, because we can, do, and there are times for that. Again, there are times we love, and um, but if we think even in just the, the biblical teaching, and you mentioned the fast or the feasting, too, those were special, special times. If we use five-course meals all the time, or we believe that that's, the, the, that's where we're setting the bar for inviting people over, goodness, what are we going to do during the high, you know, holiday season, you know? Right, it's, right. It's, so there's so nowhere in Scripture does it say have a five-course meal every single time you want to gather with people, right? Thank goodness. And and part of that, um, and it, the, the reason I discourage it um, is that because then we 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 then the excuses start, you know, to play in. And so if we just show up at the table 
and allow God to really do the heavy lifting and all of the work, that's where the beauty lies. That's where relationships happen. We get so consumed with, oh my, am I going to hand make the bread? And oh, is this is this fun? You know, lemonade going to taste really better with basil or with you know lavender? What? No, we've missed the point. And what I do, and I can only speak for myself, is I exhaust myself with all of doing that I forget to just show up like Ludmila and live in the being. Mm-hmm. Well, the one great thing about having the table, as you mentioned. Uh, in your front yard, you don't have to clean the house, right? No, it's the greatest hospitality house ever. <laughs> I mean, it's wonderful. You know, and people, when I explain, they're like, no, I mean, you don't see the dishes on the inside, you don't see the laundry, and then people are like, what if you have to go to the restroom? And I'm like, well, y'all can go in, and I mean, it's not like I'm hiding anything, <laughs> but it's just, it, it's just taking away those, you know, those excuses that we, that we put on ourselves that are lies, truthfully, um, that my house isn't clean enough, my house isn't big enough, or if I only this or if only that, you know, those are just, those are excuses that are masking something else. And the desire and the truth is we were meant, we were created to live in community. And so, you know, anything that's keeping us from that, um, you know, we have to push through it. Right, right. We're talking to Kristen Schell. She has authored the book, Turquoise Table, Finding Community and Connection in Your Own Front Yard. Uh, Kristen, I know you talk about this in your book, but tell us some stories. Tell us a couple stories of what has happened uh, around that table in your front yard. Well, if you've read the book, and for those of you who haven't, I share a story about one of my neighbors, and her name is Elizabeth. And I won't, I'll tell kind of where the story picks off from what I share in the book. And so Elizabeth, you'll learn the book. Um, I did not know she lives and I live on a cul-de-sac and she's also in the cul-de-sac. And I certainly knew who she was, um, you know, had seen her, but I didn't know her. And she's, um, she lives by herself and she's, um, I never would ever want to presume a woman's age. Um, but she, um, she's, she's not quite a hundred. How about that? Okay. <laughs> and she lives with her dog, Clyde. And so she and Clyde, um, for, for years, were on the same walking path right in front of the turquoise table. And so I can actually see the turquoise table from my kitchen window. And so even if I'm not out there, I can sense people that are, you know, stopping by or slowing by. So I can go out even if I'm not physically out there. So I would notice that Elizabeth would walk at certain times of the day. And so I began to make myself available during those times. I even took a little dog bowl out for Clyde. Well, over five years of being there and being present, um, we have become very reliant on one another and, and friends. Um, I, you know, we now move inside of the house and, you know, we'll share stories. And, and it's become really one of my most treasured relationships in the neighborhood. Recently, we had, it was the beginning, uh, it was probably three months ago, we had a horrible storm in Austin, and the, the power went out. And so, um, it, was, it wasn't quite midnight, but close. And pitch black outside, you know, we ended up losing some limbs. It was, it was not a, it was a, it was an awful storm. And I, the power was out, thank goodness, because usually we have our air conditioning or a fan on so loud, I wouldn't have heard tiny knocking on the door, the front door. And so I asked Tony, my husband, I said, gosh, do you hear that? And I was like, all the kids are here, right? And he's like, yeah. And so I heard, help me, help me. And I knew it was Elizabeth. 
So I put on a rope, ran downstairs, and opened the door, and she didn't know. She had fallen asleep before the power went out. And so when the power, when she woke up and nothing was working, she was just, you know, just very um, confused and disoriented. And, and she had grabbed her dog and walked barefoot, you know, in the storm to our house. And, you know, here's, that's never going to make the evening news. It is so simple. But the fact that Elizabeth knew that she was safe with us, and that we were there and that, you know, she could stay with us for a while. I have all of her children's phone numbers in my phone now. I was able to text them and say, power's out in Austin. Hmm. Your mom's okay. You know, we'll you know that, that is just it, what we do in our front yards matters. Hmm. You know, and I believe it matters not only to Elizabeth and her family that night, but it matters to God. And again, that's such a simple story. And you notice in it that I never did anything. I just noticed and made myself available sometimes. But it, I, there was, there was in that instance, you know, we had meals together. But, but, but that wasn't the drawing factor. But of all the places she knew, she was safe to come here. So, you know, that, that's just what, it's so simple. And yet I believe it's so profound. And I think that that is probably one of the stories, though, that underlies what I hear from people and the tables around, around all the states. And obviously, they're variations of the theme or variations of the story, and they play out these little parables in various ways. But but the bottom line is, is that we belong to one another, and we need to take care of one another. And how those play out is important to God. Mm-hmm. Well, I am I just love, and I have been fortunate enough to see the video that you have shared um, of Jack and Jennifer's table. I just. You know, but to to me, that just, it gives me such joy because think about, I never planned for, you know, to be talking to y'all in Pittsburgh, right? You know, <laughs> that's just this, this awesome way God weaves all of our stories um, together. And, and so, um, anyway, thank you for that opportunity. We do have a new community. We've, we've decided as a, as a, as a turquoise table community, we now have, I mean, there are thousands of tables, and they are in all 50 states and 13 countries. And we've moved off of Facebook, and we have a private, feel free, but it's a private community people can join. And hearing on that um, has been much, much more rich and much, I guess there's just not a fear of everybody else seeing it, or I don't know what it is. But it's just, um, it's still a relatively small group. There's 1,500 people right now, but they're all invested in the community. And so if anybody wants to learn more, um, that would be the place to kind of chime in and ask questions. And it's a super supportive and friendly, turquoise-friendly group. That's great. That's great. We'll put uh, all of Kristen's information on the links mm-hmm. uh, to the podcast. And also we'll get some that video link and some pictures up from uh, the turquoise table in Pittsburgh. I'm sure there are more than one, but we uh, – there is more than one, but we have one that we know well – and uh, we've uh, just are so excited to hear that story uh, of um, the Zebos and uh, all yeah. coming from um, their reading your book and their desire just to do hospitality uh, in their neighborhood. So, Kristen, we, we really, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for taking the time today. What a cool story. I just, I love Kristen's energy and I just love how excited she is to get to talk to other people and to meet people exactly where they are and, and just to provide a meal. It's just such a cool story. So if you're interested in learning more, I would encourage you to check out the turquoise 
On the website, there's a section that says what people are saying about the turquoise table community. And I love this one quote from Mandy T. She says, in the turquoise table community, I feel connected to others in a way that's completely different than other social media sites. It's like sitting around a digital table, sharing stories, ideas, and thoughts. It isn't a place of judgment or false impressions. And I love that. And I love this community that Kristen's built. So I totally encourage you to check out the turquoise and get a copy of your book. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.